Hello and welcome to the last episode of season one of Playing With Fire. I'm kind of sad that this is coming to a close, but we're ending on a high note. My next guest is one of my best friends, Seth Bushell, a pastor's kid from Texas who lives in the Bronx and does some of the most interesting and I think meaningful work I know. This conversation really dove into silent prayer or meditation as a practice for deepening our awareness of self and all that lives within us. As we come to see ourselves more clearly, we move into a kind of transcendent space. We also start to move into reality with a capital R. I hope you enjoy this conversation and stick around to hear more of my thoughts at the end. Hey, hey, hey. Oh my God, I'm so excited. We're finally doing this together. Are we recording right now? We're recording right now. Okay. <laughs> I am so excited to have you on my, my podcast, Playing With Fire, because you're one of my best friends. Oh, thanks. And you've been one of my best friends for a very long time. And I thought it'd be nice to introduce our audience to our time of intersection when our paths crossed because it's quite serendipitous and beautiful and very new sure. york and i thought that'd be some nice context for people to get to know sure. you a little bit and then if you want to elaborate a little bit on how you spend your days because it is quite a unique uh life that you have and i'm a strange person i, I can acknowledge <laughs> that yeah <laughs> so yeah i'll let you take it from there and and start us off okay uh well so i was i was working in australia years ago and yeah one of my roommates that i was living with was a kiwi and so he had i don't even think your first album had come out i think it was still some of just singles yeah and so i listened to that and, and become a fan of your music and then had moved to new york uh 2014 and i think that was the year the golden echo came out mm. and so I tried to get tickets to see you on tour and they were sold out and so a couple years later saw on Instagram that you were doing this pop-up show in, in Brooklyn with Exotech. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I went there and it was a very small venue. And as an introvert, I picked the seat that I thought would give me the most personal space. <laughs> <laughs> so during an intermission, you came over and sat down and I think we're just trying to decompress and ended up chatting and come to find out we have a shared love of Thomas Merton and a shared love of contemplative writers mm -hmm. and so then yeah i guess august of 2016 started kind of a house church together and that lasted uh until the pandemic <laughs> it was kind of beautiful the time of our lives that we intersected because i think we were both craving community in ways that we weren't getting from the more perhaps you know institutionalized traditional spaces sure yeah and i shared that with you and 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 you know you happen to feel the same way so <laughs> i'm really proud when i look back and think of us as two i mean i guess we were both in our 20s and and yeah. you know and, and saying to ourselves well look if we can't find a space that we can explore um con contemplative mm -hmm. prayer and spirituality and, and our questions and our yeah, journey yeah. then let's make our own you know and that that we, we called it gathering um and you know i think what was special about the place was it was it was really inclusive wasn't it it was really for anyone who yeah. wanted to develop um a life of of seeking and i just i look back on those years of my life as some of the most supported and um communal and just like I grew so much as a person through that. And Same. it was through that meeting. It was through us like at a gig, just sharing our love of an author. And I just, I love that. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, for me to, to get into what I think your second question was, which is sort of how I spend my days, uh, you know, work, work for a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We're a religious organization. And so a lot of what we do is to start 
spiritual communities in immigrant populations in major cities. Uh, we work in the Bronx. A lot of our work is with uh, either refugees or, or youth involved in gangs. Yeah. And so trying to help uh, form spiritual communities for people that are seeking mm. in, in the way you're describing. I identify as a Christian. That is my training. I uh, was through seminary. And to me, that is the motivation for why I do what I do. I think the person of Jesus has a lot to teach us about how to live in community, about how to be fully human, about how to really carry our own vulnerability and weakness in the world. Mm. And one of the things I love about starting those kinds of communities is, you know, you come in and people are really actually dedicated to a way of life together. Yeah. But what that often means is you learn through failure and, and through having to challenge one another's egos and perspectives and the way we try to do church is a pretty uh, flat room in terms of the power dynamic. Yeah. That that anybody's life experience and perspective is worth learning from, is worth yes. listening to, worth emulating. And I think if you can establish that kind of culture and community, that that to me is what churches should be. Mm. Uh, but then you ask the people in the room, like, you know, would you identify as Christian? And most of them would say no. Right. Right. But would often still say, but this is my church. Right. This is my community. <laughs> and I love that, like that, that democratic space for everyone's path to be, you know, worthy of listening to and learning from, um, which is not a space we find in a lot of religious institutions, you know. I think that's a fair critique. Yeah. And I think we bonded over that, you know, not only our searching, but our our shared misgivings about, you know, how hard community life can be and yeah. how hierarchical it can be. Yeah. I, I think the desire to control, in my experience, is almost always a manifestation of insecurity. Mm. And so the inability to to read a spiritual text and let somebody come to a different conclusion than I have, or to share a spiritual practice that's meaningful to me, but isn't particularly meaningful to the person I'm, I'm trying to share it with. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, to listen to them talk about experiences of God or spiritual practices that fall very far outside of what I've experienced, mm -hmm. but that doesn't delegitimize them. Yeah. And I have experiences that I desire to share with others, mm. but in sharing those, it isn't my desire to convert them to my exact way of thinking or, or to try to make them somehow an empty account for right. me to deposit my theological knowledge into. Right, yeah. But to say... I bet this person knows something about God that I don't. I bet this person has, has been through things that I struggle to, to discern and, and navigate in my own life. And can the basis of our spiritual community be the mutual respect? Yes. And the humility to say uh, shared questions are a lot more important than shared answers. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so much is coming up for me right now. I'm thinking about how important it is to set up a set of values when you go into community, when you really go into anything, honestly. It's sure. how I make music is I set up a mission statement, you know, for what the song's gonna be, what the record's gonna be. I set up a series of values that might be limitations, like I'm not gonna use synthesizers, I'm only gonna use guitars or something. But sure, sure. I, or I set up the value that this is gonna be a record exploring family or it's gonna be exploring a past relationship. You know, the yeah. values you set out with come to uh, establish the culture. Correct, yeah. Well, and I, I think to that point, um, what I often experience, because if, if people ask me what I do, I, I answer differently depending on who asked me. You, you know, you, you try to contextualize the work in a, in a way that they can continue to engage. Mm. And often with religious language, that means changing the way you talk about it. Yep. Because a yep. lot of religious vocabulary is not 
accessible to people that aren't a part of that. Yeah, or highly triggering. A hundred percent that. But I think in almost any atmosphere, uh, boundaries and clear expectations actually enable cooperation, mm. right? And I think that's true in community as well. And what I find with a lot of people that, you know, when I talk about what I do, I often describe it as saying, you know, I start churches for people that are spiritual, but not religious. Mm. And those are the people I like to be in community with. So that's what I say. But I think within that, often those people I know are, are very curious. They're, they're very interested in, in experimenting with spiritual practices and disciplines and learning more. But they sometimes have an aversion to any amount of structure. Yeah. Uh, understandably, mm -hmm. because a lot of the structures I think they've experienced have been abusive. Mm. And I, I think sometimes the pendulum swings too far the other way. And then it's, okay, well, no, no structures, no expectations, no commitments. And that's very hard to do community in, yeah. to, to not have a shared sense of mission, to not have a shared sense of purpose, to not be able to call out behaviors that violate what we are trying to foster as a culture together. Yeah. Yeah. Actually really, uh, inhibits community. Mm. and to have a, a very generous sense of some boundaries and expectations, not about who's welcome, mm -hmm. but about uh, what is important to us about the way we relate to one another. Yeah, I, I think that actually is really necessary in order to foster community. So you talked a bit about structure and the importance of a kind of container for community to exist within, or, or maybe another word is like the map of sorts. And that's come up a lot in my talks around transcendence is that mm. people came to have these experiences, whether they were sort of mystical or, or they went beyond themselves in some way. They came to have these experiences um, from within a, 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 a structure, a container. And what I mean by that is what made the experiences transcendent was that they broke this person outside of the, the box that they had been given. And I would love to know how... How do you remember first fostering those experiences that took you beyond the maps and the container that you sure, were given, sure. which was actually a fairly religious upbringing from what I understand. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, right. Yeah. My, my father was a preacher and my grandfather was a preacher. Wow. My great grandfather was a preacher. So yeah, I grew up in a very religious family. Damn. Yeah. And, uh, I, but it was a, it was a largely positive experience, Yeah. but it didn't focus a lot on the interior life. No. Uh, it was a lot about study and learning and knowledge and, and developing good morals and good character. But yeah. uh, any kind of mystical language or even overly experiential language was suspect. Totally. Um, but then, you know, get in, into my friendship circles that, that really help you form your social identities and adolescent and things like that. And almost everybody has this overwhelmingly negative experience of Christianity. Yeah. And, and has really been wounded by people that ostensibly share my, my beliefs and identity. And that was really hard. And I would say a lot of my adolescent years, I picked up a lot of the woundedness and cynicism of the, the people who were close to me. Yeah. But it was often secondhand. It wasn't really me having a negative experience of Christians. It was yeah. it was caring for other people who had. Sure. And and feeling a real sense of betrayal. Yeah. That like I I say those things, but I don't mean the same thing when I say that. Yeah. Or or I do believe that, but not in the way that you experience somebody that well, said yeah. they believed that. Yeah. And that was really hard. And I had the strong sense of, of kind of calling into the ministry that I do now. Yeah. It didn't make sense. I thought it was a terrible job and I didn't want to do it, but I had a strong sense I was supposed to be doing this. And so, yeah, summer after I graduated from high school, I was working with this ministry in Denver, uh, plugged to shout out to dry bones in Denver, <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but they, they work with uh, homeless youth. And at the time Denver had the highest 
number of homeless youth anywhere in the country. And so I was working there and, and kind of sitting and trying, I think one of the first times I'd ever tried to sort of pray silently or meditate or whatever language you want to use. And I, I don't know why, but the fruits of the Spirit came to mind, which is a passage in the New Testament where, where Paul's kind of outlining what, what is the fruit of a spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And I'm thinking through this and just realizing, like, I don't exhibit almost any of these qualities and, and I'm so angry and so bitter mm. and, and just having this sense of kind of revulsion of, uh, in a moment of self-awareness mm. uh, that was very quickly followed by this just mystical experience of love. And the difficulty with mysticism is these are experiences that transcend language. Yes. And they're very difficult to speak about because yes. they are so highly experiential. And probably why we veer from talking about them, to be honest, because it's not easy to land somewhere, no, right? It's ineffable. No, and, and... and you can't empirically validate them. Right. There's nothing I can point to to say this happened right. other than I experienced this. Yeah, yeah. And, and oftentimes, uh, I think what happens with a lot of people when they first experience the contemplative life the, the first discipline we work with people on, we talk about the discipline of secrecy, uh, which is to say, you know, be, be discerning with who you talk about important spiritual experiences with mm. because the desire to interpret them very quickly gets shaped around the perception of other people. And, and right. the more people you have invited in to help you interpret meaningful religious experiences, the more at danger you are of, of your own prayer practices becoming performative. That's super interesting because it's also like obviously such an important thing to be able to talk about your experience yep. in some way, right? Like right. obviously you have to be able to put put into some language right. what you experienced and find, you know, um, uh, people are able to mirror that back to you and say, me too, you know, right. and then you go, yeah, oh, yeah. oh, wow, like this is not, I'm not just nuts, right. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that feels important, but at the same time, it sounds like what you're saying is there is something very personal and somewhat sacred about that experience that is only your own. And the more that you speak to others about it, the more chance there is of their interpretation, maybe, is it almost like not tainting your own, yeah. but maybe changing it? Or? Uh, certainly changing it. You know, yeah. I think, uh, and this may be a bad example, but, uh, because I don't know anything about science, but, uh, yes, you do. You know, there's, uh, there's a thing I, to my understanding in physics called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is that in quantum mechanics, if you try to measure, uh, I think it's the relationship between particles or the movement of parts, something like that, yeah. that you change the outcome by measuring it. That's right. And I think that's true in prayer. It's, it's not a caution against sharing meaningful experiences. It's a caution about the way that you go to other people in order to have them interpret those experiences. And I think that's because a lot of what happens in prayer, you don't evaluate in the short term. And, mm. and at least for me in the, the tradition that I, I was formed in, uh, when we go into prayer, the other great discipline for us is aimlessness, which is to say, when I sit down in silence or meditation or, or whatever this kind of contemplative practice is, I am not trying to manufacture an experience. Mm. I am not trying to create a certain type of experience. Yeah. I'm going to pay attention and, and not try to manipulate or control the next period of time. Yeah. 
And what often happens early in, in somebody's contemplative life, not all the time, but often, is uh, those early experiences of, of, you know, unity with God or the divine presence. Uh, and that was what happened with me. You know, you, I have this experience of, of, of thinking about the, you know, the fruits of the spirit and, and have this just an enormous contempt for the yeah. person that I'm experiencing mm-hmm. myself as in this moment. And then you have this just overwhelming experience of love and oneness and oneness. And mm. for me, I just broke down and started crying and which I, I used to do a lot more often now, but at the time was I, in my mind exceptional, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the reason for that was there's this enormous experience of love and acceptance, but it's for the, that person that, that, that experience of self-awareness and frankly, really not wanting to accept that's true about how I treat people. That's true about how, how I am as a person. And that's the person that God loves, not the person I project to other people and wish to be not, not the story I like to tell myself about myself, but me as I actually am. That's the person that, that God loves and, and who this experience is for. And so in order to participate in, in this mystical experience, I have to do it at the cost of being that person. Mm. So I'm thinking now about how important it is to let experiences of transcendence, and I don't know if this is something you can consciously do because in my experience, they often feel quite outside of my own control. That's the beauty of them. But it sounds like you're saying there's a power when we let our transcendent experiences reveal to us who we who we really are. Well, yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think also transcendence is as much about, I think, perception and attention as it is about having a positive experience. Ooh, I love that. Let's go deeper. Yeah. Uh, so the the kind of high mystical experience that I'm describing in Denver, I've I've had a few of those in my life, not very many. Same here. And I do not desire to have more. I am not trying to reproduce those. Mm. Those are not a a truer or more valuable experience of God than the most distracting and boring seasons in prayer. Mm. Uh, the difference is my ability to pay attention and and kind of dwell or or abide in this moment. Reminds me of mindfulness too. It's, that's exactly what it is. I mean, mindfulness mm-hmm. very much comes out of that tradition that that to be able to be a good host to whatever the experience of prayer is today mm-hmm. is much more important than whether or not this is a consistently positive or or meaningful in the moment experience. And so I, you know, I have this mystical experience, and then I go to college. It totally rocked my world. I I was completely disoriented and, and frankly just kind of panicking. Because in my experience, you don't have religious experiences. You don't expect to have these. I'd never heard the word mystical. I didn't have a box right. to put that in. And so I thought I might be going crazy. Ro- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And it must have been so liberating for you to then stumble upon authors like Merton who were able to put into words some of this experience. Yeah. Right? Well, actually, to so the, the first person I met was the, the person who became my spiritual director, Randy Harris. Um, I went and kind of sought him out because he was the first person that was describing what I experienced in a way that I thought, oh, this is no, this is actually something that exists in, yeah. in the world. Yes. And to his credit, he gave me nothing to read. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, he's like, why don't you come by my office, you know, on Tuesday and, and we'll pray together. And I did that almost every week for like five years. And it was not until like two, maybe um, two or three years in that 
he like passed anything to read my way. And I'm really grateful for that in retrospect, because as somebody who works with a lot of people on, on developing a contemplative life or as a spiritual director, it's very easy to try to read your way into a prayer practice. And often what happens with people, at least in my experience, when they first encounter mysticism, they end up competing with who they're reading with in mm. terms of how they evaluate their practice. Well, it's back to the measurement thing again. Exactly. Measuring exactly. the experience. That, of, yeah. that they are comparing their early contemplative experiences to sort of the masters of this tradition. Oh, that's a lot. And, and I mean, a lot of those people were cloistered and, right. you know, set away from society. Well, but, and we have to live yeah. in this damn world. And uh, <laughs> 100%. But also yeah. those people will tell you the experiences they're talking about are pretty rare over the course of a lifetime. Totally. And, and you look at some of their writings that are less popular and it, they look like almost anybody's journals I would know. Like, yeah. where is God? This is so dry. This is so hard. Yeah. I feel abandoned. Yes. I feel f- afraid. Yes. I, I feel a complete lack of knowing how to move forward in, in my circumstances. Yeah. That is all a part of the life of prayer as well. That's right. And it is very easy to make an idol out of spirituality and demand of it that it give us the experience of feeling loved, of, of feeling oriented, of feeling known, of feeling worthy. It is completely unrealistic, I think, that people feel that way all the time. And one of the things that's very comforting in my own faith is I don't think Jesus feels that way most of the time. Hmm. I mean, this is not a person who's having an overwhelmingly positive emotional experience. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and so those those experiences of lostness and disorientation and confusion and betrayal and abandonment, that's what that's a big part of what it's like to be human. Yeah. And and prayer is deeply meaningful in my life. It's the practice almost everything else gets oriented around. But that sense of loneliness and and that sense of being controlling or being insecure is all a part of the practice. It doesn't prayer's not gonna make you stop being human. <laughs> <laughs> I've always admired your deep respect for silence. I mean, I think when we talk about prayer, it's it's good to discuss kind of how you and I approach that sure. that word because it's not often very vocal for, for either of us. It's a very silent practice, yeah. often with mantra, looking more like a yeah, yeah. meditation practice than anything else. But um, I think that respect for silence is something that, I don't know, you just, you just don't see a lot of in... Um, mm. our, our leaders and especially, you know, <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, religious hierarchy. It's like, yeah. it's just such a loud, um, environment, you know, mm. people are just yelling all the time about their beliefs. And I, I think we've really bonded over that re- respect and reverence for, for silence. And, and, you know, as you speak, I realize that transcendence as a kind of, um, I guess experience encapsulates a lot of things it is not just the mountaintop moments in order to have the transcendent one must also you know retreat into what the mystics would call the dark night of the soul and it's important we don't push that away correct and say no i only will have the transcendent i will only have those mountaintop glory you know break open from the sky or as performers you know i will only have the 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 grand applause of the crowd and (laughs) i will not take the intimacy of when they they say nothing after a song or when actually they might not like a new song you know Mm-hmm. It's like all of it. It's so easy for us to judge our experience and say that one side of it is the only um, valuable part. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And so to say, uh, you know, early on in prayer, there's going to be a lot of desolation, mm-hmm. and 
a lot of the pain and grief that I want to ignore needs to be dealt with in that space. It just kind of cycles back and forth between this consolation and desolation. Mm. And Boy, do I know that? And I think that's why it's so important to do in community. Yeah. Because to do it on one's own it is to lack the support system that it, it makes possible to actually work a lot of that stuff out of the space that's in prayer. And what I mean by that is the kind of attention I'm trying to pay in prayer to my own emotional life and impulses and motives and going back in, into my own memories and, and trying to reconcile and heal those things. The reason to do that is not only because of my relationship with God. At some level, I want to be that same person in my relationship with other people. Yeah. And uh, if, if I can't control my own insecurity and anxiety and deep desire for validation and affirmation in prayer alone, if, if I am completely manipulative and self-serving in prayer and all I want is to demand that I have the experience of being loved and being affirmed that I want to have, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how I am in my relationships as well. It actually reminds me of how I look at live performance. I hope to create a culture at my shows that expands outside of that music venue. Right. You know, the, the, the things that we can practice in community at a concert, which is, I mean, let's look at, you know, the way music brings people together oh, yeah. in ways that they don't come together outside of that space. No, and, <laughs> I'm, and even, you know, uh, clinical psychology backs that up. Mm-hmm. In terms of having having people do corporate acts together, like sing together, yeah. does have a bonding effect, does yeah. have a, a, a way of shaping culture and self-perception and those kind of things. Yeah. I guess I just want to ask you lastly, how have your moments of transcendence, however they've looked. For some of my guests, they've been very, you know, seemingly ordinary moments. And for others, they've been quite life-changing and transformative. Sure. But how for you specifically, how have you changed as a result um, of these moments in your life? Yeah. Well, uh, I think one, I, I'm certainly more generous towards other people's experiences of God. Hmm. Um, my practice has gotten much more oriented toward grief and toward praying for enemies. And by enemies, I, you know, I just mean people that you resent or, or try to cut out of your life. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. Yeah. And in that sense, I, a lot of my prayer practice, when it's not silent, is grief practice. And I really, really am convinced that if you see the world with God's eyes, everybody's life is going to break your heart, including your own. There, there's nobody whose life experience, if you really pay attention to it, won't break your heart. And I think that to grieve for those wounds without losing hope, without, without falling into cynicism or despair is a deeply loving thing to do. And my experience of transcendence over the last four or five years, especially is that I think in grief, there is solidarity with God mm. to be able to enter into other people's pain, to be inter to able to listen and pay attention to other people's grief and to share it and to hold it and to try not to manipulate it and to have the self-awareness to know you can't fix it. Mm. You can't take it away. Uh, there is a deep, that is the fruit of, of prayer often, much more so than a sense of certainty uh, or, or a lack of fear or insecurity. The ability 
to enter into that space of disorientation and pain and be as open-handed and as curious and as non-anxious as you have cultivated in prayer. I think that's the fruit of the practice. And to be honest, that's a kind of transcendence in of itself. It's exactly that because you, you have, you have learned to cultivate an identity that is so grounded in prayer that you can work out of it when you're not in prayer. Yeah. Oh, wow. Seth, thank you so much for deep diving with me. This is what we do like whenever we hang out. Though. So say, this just I, sounds yeah, like I, this is just <laughs> you day recording office. every time we've had coffee. But yeah, <laughs> but I really, you know, I'm so I'm so proud of our friendship because I think it comes out of such a sort of genuine um, serendipitous place. But we've, we've grown together as people and we've witnessed um, a lot of change in each other's lives yeah. and being there for a lot of the most painful moments. Those and, are facts. I would, I would say also, I think, you know, as wonderful as this conversation is, it is representative of uh, a lot of the, the people who have been in our friendship. You know, the, the gathering we had, the community yeah. that, that we were part of for that time. I wouldn't want to pretend that any of these ideas or experiences are original to me. I learned that in community. Yeah. And, I, you know, I really don't think there's any such thing as experts in the spiritual life. Um, but there is such thing as wisdom. And, and I think whatever wisdom we possess, and it's something I appreciate about you, I, we learned from other people. I love you, friend. Thanks, Kay. Thank you. Wow, so much to digest in that conversation. I loved how we focused on community in this chat. Not just the congregating of people, but the importance of a democratic space where anyone's perspective is worth learning from. Shared questions are just as important as shared answers. How transformative is that perspective? I loved Seth's insight around boundaries and how they can actually enable cooperation. Then lastly, Seth reminded us that transcendence is just as much about perception and attention as it is about having a positive experience. Join the conversation over at Discord. It's a place where we can build community around the things we're learning together. This podcast is brought to you by TalkHouse. Feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.